0: Hello, everyone. This is the Sustaining Innovation panel and the purpose of the session is to follow on from the presentation this morning that that Kay made and um, go a bit deeper in terms of what organisations have done. The session will go for 45 minutes, so it's 45 minutes to wine o'clock. Calibrate your watches. Um, I'm going to introduce the panel very briefly and ask them to share their initial responses to the... Seven factors, which we just lost some for some reason, that were, but they'll come back up. So the seven factors that were identified in the research, um, I'll be asking the, our four panelists to comment on um, how, how those factors um, had a place in their organisation in terms of their embedding of e-learning, and then I'll be opening the floor for an open discussion for the rest of the 45. Um, oh, was that my fault? Okay, I'll make sure I've got the, the magic finger. Um, So, let's begin. I'll start... You met Kay Bowman this morning. She's one of the authors of the um, sustaining e-learning research that was undertaken in 2010 um, through the Australian Flexible Learning Framework, and the purpose of that was to look at what are the factors, and it was through the eyes of and through the practices of various funded projects through the years and and different activities. Um, I'll get people to put their hands up when I name them. Janelle Morris is the training coordinator at Southern IML Pathology Training, which is a regional enterprise RTO based in Wollongong on the south coast. Janelle led an e-learning innovations project in 2008, which developed a number of videos for use with the the pathology arm of the organisation, the actual enterprise. Um, in 2010, she's been working on a Certificate III course um, using Moodle and also an organisation-wide induction process. So that's her story um, in terms of the framework and e-learning. Debbie little in the middle, is an educational e-learning consultant to Community Colleges New South Wales. Debbie's involvement in the framework goes back a decade and includes LearnScope projects right in the beginning, a flexible learning leaders fellowship in 2004, project management of a number of projects in, in recent years and she also is a member of the New South Wales Flexible Learning Framework Reference Group and has been since 2009. Stefan Ridgewell, I'll get you to work out which one he is, is the Manager of Learning and Innovation in the Workforce Development Unit of Sydney Institute, which is a metropolitan public training provider here in Sydney. And I think it's the oldest training organisation in the Southern Hemisphere, isn't it? Oh, I believe
1: so. Back, back... anniversary
0: this year. Yeah, so it's got a
1: very... years.
0: 125 years, the old Mechanics Institute, and then... 120, thanks. I, Yay, I had well five done.
2: Years.
0: sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so Stefan's involvement with the framework go- also goes back to the very beginning, starting with LearnScope and probably even before LearnScope. And he's held a wide range of project roles since then which have been instrumental in embedding e-learning in his organisation. And finally, we have Bronwyn Campbell, an e-learning training... Um, consultant with ADAS, which is the Australian Diver Accreditation Scheme, and they're a private regional RTO based in northern New South Wales. Bronwyn's involvement in the framework only goes back to 2009. However, they've packed a lot of punch in during that time. They've got their second project in 2010, and I think the first project led to a $1.3 million um, federal um, teaching and learning capital fund simulator. Invest- she can tell you about that um, if you ask her. So I suggest you ask her. And they've just um, been successful in gaining funding under the industry integration program for next year. So they're, they're an organisation that's really grabbed these opportunities and has run with them. So we have um, public training providers, enterprise RTO, the ACE sector and um, private RTOs. In a few minutes, I'll be asking um, for questions from the audience, but in the meantime, I'll kick off by asking our panellists to share their responses to the research in terms of the roles that these seven elements played in embedding e-learning in their organisations. So um, who'd like to start? Okay, Janelle, thanks for volunteering.
3: Hello. (laughs) Who stepped backwards? (laughs) That's really mean. Okay. Um, as Rose said, I'm um, training coordinator for a uh, enterprise-based RTO. We're only a young RTO of five years. Um, we became an RTO because we recognised a skill shortage in our area of pathology. Um, that's a, a national skill shortage, which is, is still really quite evident. Um, initially, it was a skill shortage with uh, what we call our pathology collectors, the people on the front line. Um, That school shortage has um, progressed through our scientists, um, our doctors, our pathologists as well. Now, um, uh, back in uh, 2005, we became an RTO. Uh, We were just training locally. Uh, We then um, had a framework um, grant in 2008 to develop some um, distance learning videos which we then were encouraged to uh, place an online course so we could uh, deliver nationally which we do now. Uh, we deliver traineeships Within our um, sonic umbrella, because we're part of the sonic group, which is a, a multinational um, pathology practice or healthcare practice. And um, this year, the need was seen to actually um, uh, have a, a, an online induction process because of the critical skill shortages we have in the area. We were finding that a lot of people who were beginning um, work with us were going one or two years without a safety induction which is just not good. So um, in uh, my response to the seven factors, the seven factors when you're an enterprise-based RTO really comes from the top. It comes from your senior leadership. They make the decisions. They they form the strategies. They have the business case to say this is going to happen. So they then appoint the champion. Hello. The champion. (laughs) And um, our resources are basically the knowledge within our practice, the, the the experts that we have in each of our teams. And um, then, of course, we had problems, because our res- the resources, um, we had to develop a lot of them. We used a lot of framework stuff. Uh, if it wasn't for the framework, we would never, ever have uh, developed anything online whatsoever. Where we found we had problems was with our IT, uh, our IT support, and our technology. Even though within the practice we had uh, multi-million-dollar analyzers and amazing stuff that could pick out, you know, tiny little cells and wonderful diseases and things, but we didn't have the basic stuff just to um, run an online course. We didn't have basic things like flash um, on our our computers. So that was where we fell down, and our IT support internally within Sonic, um, of course, have to have a lot of blocks, have to have a lot of security, and they're involved in pathology, they're not involved in education. So to sort of get around that, I had to find somebody who would support us um, and somebody with knowledge externally. Uh, That's one of the important things to us um, was finding somebody who was an expert in the field to give me advice because five years ago, I couldn't turn a computer on. Um, So, you know, to us, that's really important. So I guess strategy, senior management, senior leadership and the business case to get it going, then they pick somebody and, believe it or not, You know why I was chosen? Because I had a roto cuff injury and they couldn't give me anything else to do. (laughs) I mean, hello. (laughs) I feel really privileged about that. Uh, It was nothing to do with my talent, with my knowledge or anything else. It was the fact, you're there, you're not doing anything
0: at the moment, you know. Learn. Michael and, and, M- Michael and I were talking at lunchtime about the word ordinary, and it's funny that Andrew Douch was saying the same thing in terms of it. it's not rocket science, it's just right time, right place, and, and right, right attitude.
3: Yeah, so I'm not an expert in anything, but I believe if I can fumble through doing these things, anybody can.
0: You know, I'm not X and Y. I'm baby boomer, <laughs> and it's now embedded. So that's that's fantastic. And think of your questions because I'll be asking you soon. So thank you, Janelle, for that. Debbie, would you like to share with us um, your response to um, the factors that that have um, most contributed to sustaining e-learning? <laughs>
4: Thanks. Uh, hi, I'm Debbie. I'm currently working for Community Colleges Australia, which is the industry body for the ACE organisations in New South Wales. Um, I guess I come from me learning from two different and quite diverse perspectives. From the perspective of Community Colleges Australia, is a very it's a very large organisation. Um, we have 68 members across New South Wales and Victoria that come with a diverse range of needs. So our motivation to e-learning there really was that we needed to provide networking and professional development opportunities for a, a wide and diverse range of members. Um, so we work in web conferencing and we work on a Moodle platform to provide uh, e-learning opportunities for our members. We run a lot of discussions, we run a lot of validation, so it's a very diverse learning program. Um, In my prior hat, I used to be the manager of a very, very small ace college, and I guess our e-learning drive came from a completely different objective there. was We realised that in a town of 20,000 retirees, um, getting an increase in enrolments was always going to be a challenge so we realised that e-learning was going to be our opportunity of breaking beyond the small geography of our town. If we could get a good e-learning platform up then we could be delivering in a lot of varied locations. So within a year of us starting an e-learning program we were delivering in in WA um, and in Northern Territory so that was a completely different motivation. Both really I guess come back to the same drives in terms of Kay's research I know a lot of Kay's research from different different programs and I love the way, Kay, you always bring those back to a series of points and I recognise your series of points from other research you've done and it works in my brain so I I really like the way you've done that. I think the most significant one for me is the notion of champions. When you're working in any kind of geography... um, it's really valuable to harness the people who've had that light bulb moment, like Rose, you mentioned, the fact that you don't need to be skilled, you just need to kind of get it. Well, no one was skilled five years ago. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's really easy entry point. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, so we started a, a, a statewide program about five years ago, which we termed Local Champions, where we we took one person from each geography and really developed their skills. And when I look at the network across community colleges Australia now, particularly in New South Wales, um, those champions, the influence of those champions is still very strong. Um, I guess moving on to the resourcing area, the challenge for us in a lot of small community education organisations is that those people move through. And when I look at the people that were our champions and were our flexible learning leaders five, six years ago, they all now work for people that can pay them a lot more. Um, So the notion of champions is is very vital. The notion of how you can continue to resource and develop those champions I think is is a challenge in small community organisations.
2: Okay, thank you. Bronwyn. Thank you. Uh, one of the things I really liked about Kay's research was that she pointed out that the seven factors were not linear. They were, there was not one that was the most important and that without that one nothing else could happen. And the other thing that I thought was very good was that these factors come into play in different Ways within uh, an organisation, depending on the type of organisation, the context within which it works, and so on. So, I thought that was very valuable. Uh, now, I work actually as an e-learning consultant for the Australian Diver Accreditation Scheme. My organisation is Active Learning Partners, and I've been uh, involved with the Australian Diver Accreditation Scheme since I helped them become an RTO ten years ago, and. I've been very fortunate in that we've maintained a very good relationship all the way through and one of the things that we started with was the champions and senior leadership support and really I guess what what happened there was uh, that I very much in my organisation took a a leadership approach to wanting to develop e-learning as our main strategy and I was lucky enough to get the support from ADAS to be able to act as a champion within that organisation. Uh, Now that at the start was a little bit like a lone voice in the wilderness, uh, as uh, Paula can attest to, Paula who's here with me today. And um, it it took us a little while. So I introduced e-learning to ADAS in 2005. I started myself in 2003. Uh, And... We took a little while. We, we, we worked with a small group of pilot learners uh, in the advanced diploma area. We, we teach occupational diving. Uh, we, ADAS accredits all commercial divers throughout Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Rose said something about punching above our weight. Well, ADAS punches above its weight in the, on the global stage, and it's one of the leading uh, international regulators for commercial diving. Uh, So it's done very well there. And what I found really interesting was I thought commercial diving was rich people who could afford to do it. You're talking (laughs) forensic police, firemen, SES. Like it's really that's right. It's a really it's a fascinating field. It crosses multiple industries. We don't have an industry skills council or a training package because we cover nearly every industry. Uh, We cover in this particular project that we did this year with the framework. We were working with New South Wales Police, Army, and Defence divers. Uh, The project that Rose mentioned, the dive training dive supervisor training simulator we're working with offshore divers in the oil and gas sector fascinating project, come and talk to me about it you won't stop me Uh, and then we also work with aquaculture divers, scientific divers our oldest diver on our books is an 83 year old female scientific diver which we're very proud of so uh, there's a a huge range that that we work with now we moved through the seven factors and I could really say that we, we have pretty much covered all of them on our journey, but it has been a journey. So we started with the champions and the senior leadership. Senior leadership was was encouraging but not fully there at the start. We were lucky enough to apply for and gain funding in 2009 and that's where it really took off. So with that funding from the framework we got the resources that we needed business case, Melanie made me rewrite my business case and get it really right. And I tell you what, that's a real advantage to have a solid business case that when somebody says to you, why are you doing that? You say, remember you signed off on it? That's really helpful. So thank you, Melanie. That was great. So the business case pushed the senior leadership support to a certain extent this year. Now, I don't think that we would have continued or, or, or got that sustainability if we had stopped last year. So we applied for funding this year, even though we were so overwhelmed with this other project, we decided to apply for funding anyway. And I was very fortunate to have the support of Paula in within the ADAS organisation, who very much took on um, <coughs> the, the, the champion role. I moved more into technology support and people support and and help support Paula through that process and and that's
0: quite interesting because, Janelle, you're, you actually took a year off to consolidate the work you've done. into. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, it's horses for courses and yes. it really depends on what
2: you're faced with. Yes, that's right. Well, I really, I, exactly. I felt we needed that extra time with the framework. I feel now that if the funding stopped, that we have gone far enough and covered enough of those factors that we could continue, which is, fits in with the e-maturity model that you talked about. So I think that, that that's really useful to see that that research fits in with our journey. Fantastic thank you. Stefan
1: Thanks Ruth. Yeah we're obviously uh, slightly different um, in that we're very large. Um, the Sydney Institute um, is obviously a public RTO with about 70,000 students and 5,000 staff and of course we're part of a much larger organisation, TAFE Wales. Uh, but in terms of I guess strategy TAFE South Wales uh, put a significant investment in e-learning in around 2000 with what was called uh, TAFE Online 1 and the focus there was uh, building capability across the organisation and I know when I started in TAFE in around 99, and I actually started as a developer funnily enough Um, it was a bit of a flash program in my day uh, not anymore. I think I'm well out of date in that area, but uh, there was a lot of investment in in. Um capability for staff, but also at that time, TAFE felt that they needed resources, and they spent a very large amount of money developing entire courses uh, to be delivered uh, online through a, through a, uh, a learning management system. And I think time has showed that that strategy is rather dated now, but at the time that was the focus. And that pretty much went for around five years. But parallel to that, of course, was LearnScope. Uh, which certainly Sydney Institute and TAFE New South Wales have been enormous uh, beneficiaries of and it has been a tremendous uh, um, capability building uh, driving force in our organisation despite our size. Uh, What often happens with an organisation the size of TAFE and, and Sydney Institute is that we're Almost a victim of our size. We're so large, have such a such a dead weight dragging us, a dead weight of history dragging us, that it's very hard to be flexible, responsive, to be able to just change quickly and take on board uh, innovation. Uh, but to the credit, uh, the fle- in our in Sydney Institute, we had a number of flex- two flexible learning leaders who really uh, drove. Um, change and awareness at senior management level in the organisation and a central unit was formed uh, within Sydney Institute uh, probably around 2002, something like that, to really uh, give presence and legitimacy to uh, e-learning and to consolidate the TAFE online, the TAFE strategy, but as well as uh, the framework strategy that was uh, working in parallel. So I think... um, That's important, but I think the great thing about LearnScope is that it it, it comes from the bottom. A lot of our um, innovation has come from the bottom, not from the top. Uh, That's really important, I think, to emphasise that. Not to say that senior management aren't important. It's critical that they back. E-learning. If they don't, it's never going to get any uh, legs whatsoever. But what they have to do, and I think Victor has emphasised in this in a recent presentation uh, that I saw, they have to give oxygen to innovators uh, and allow innovators the space and the, um, you know, resources, perhaps as funding, to be able to just go and do their thing. You no, know, so. Anyway.
0: Thank you. That's a fantastic spread of stories um, and specific examples. Before I move to questions, Kay, would you like to um, make any observations or say anything in relation to what's been said or would you like us to move to questions? I notice you've been scribbling like mad. Oh, yeah.
5: <laughs> <laughs> That's all my personal benefit as opposed to necessarily any way uh, here. Um, just good to see that... Um, you know, people can talk um, around their journey using using the seven factors. And as I say, you could cut the cake differently, um, but it is one way to to look at it. And um, of all the research we did, the, the, the vignettes, which is um, ten organisations with us taking them through each of these factors and them talking about their journey, uh, to me that's the best part of the report. Uh, we use some of that and, and, and pull it out. Um, I. I agree about this uh, bottom-up versus, you know, the top-down versus the bottom-up and, and the giving of oxygen um, to, to 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 people to, to, to have the scope. And we heard that this morning, that, you know, Andrew was given half-time. And, and it is very important. And I'm very aware that, that, that LearnScope did that. Um, buying time and space for people is one of the things that the framework um, has done very effectively um, and, and somehow that needs to be translated into the institution and somehow with the existing resources, whether whether it's a matter of everyone doing another 20% of the work to give one person some time off, um, because I, 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 I'm aware that, you know... <laughs> It's very hard to, to get that extra time, but it is pretty important to try and find it. But the main point I want to write, uh, say right now is, is something that Bronwyn um, uh, actually said, um, and, and, and that is that... Um, and, ..and necessarily um, the framework, you know, to, to get your money each year. By the time you've got it, it's April, May, um, and you get started on your project, and it is a galloping pace... Um, and, and I was involved in the evaluation of the community engagement projects that ran through 2005 to 2007, uh, and it's stunning, as, as I've even heard today um, in the, the sessions I, I've gone to, it's stunning how much everyone can, can, can do, but I do take the point, and it's exactly what Byron Bay Community College uh, said to us, who uh, was one of the, uh, the 10 in the vignettes, that that, that gets you started, but then there is the embedding of that, um, and uh, it's been said time and time again about whether there is a need for longer than a first year worth of funding. It could tail off. Um, to to give people that opportunity to to really embed it. And I I just raised... We raised the issue of the... If you look at the industry side of things, um, they did the business um, demonstration projects through 2005 to 2007. Now, that particular... This is outside your innovation programs. As you know, you can enhance learners through those or you can do business and um, RTO partnerships. But there is still a continuing, um, is it called the, what's it called? Industry Integration. Industry Integration, Industry integration Project. Now, they have been running a three year scheme in that, which allows time for you to plan and, and, and get started, but then move into embedding and, and, and doing some of the sustainability. Um, and if you can get a three year cycle of that, however you do it, uh, but if you can convince your institutions if they're not going to get more framework money to actually have another two years to fully get there, um, you know, that, that's, that's part of what I think this story is about, that it, it takes longer than just that, you know, so there's been some terrific stuff done, but if you need to really look at it over a, a, a two- to three-year cycle to, to embed however that, that might um, uh, come about... Um, so there's the, the two things that I think are, uh, the framework has been fantastic and given a lot of people opportunity to get started. And unfortunately, I'm not convinced that those people should have more opportunity as opposed to newcomers uh, in the future a little bit more with them as the experts, those that have been there. Uh, and uh, the other Kate, a bit more longer in the time frame.
0: I might jump in now because we're going to run out of time, I think. Who's got questions? Because I'd like to give as much time as possible. And who's next after that, so I can
1: get a microphone to you? Um, Stephen Glacic from the New South Wales RFS. Looking at your model and the issue of sustainability, I think there's one thing missing, and that's actual learners. As far as um, sustaining and learning, I thought one of the critical factors would be engagement, and that that as a measure of your your success would be factoring in um, there. So any comments or feedback on that?
5: Yes, it's hidden, uh, unfortunately, under people's support. Um, and I'd like to clarify what I mean by people support, which I don't think is as clear as in, in, in the report. The people support is, is, is supporting the teacher who's going to use the e-learning and supporting the learner. Um, and and, and though that's the people support, what I, what I mean there. Uh, and everything else is around allowing those two groups, the teacher and the learner, to get on with uh, teaching and learning through e-learning, with all the background uh, coming from somewhere else. That's my view. So that's where... And it is hidden, and I I really should have... I'd
1: prefer to call it teacher and learning support. I'll take your point. I noticed in your vignettes, a lot of them uh, had central units, and I assume that's also what you included in, in supporting people having... Uh, other, you know, uh, people with knowledge, expertise, technical expertise, to be able to assist people on the ground, mentoring programs. We've certainly got one in our organisation because people felt the need to have someone there in their section. They might go to a professional development, but they go back to their section and they've forgotten what they, uh, they learnt. Perhaps there's not the support there by local management. So having a, a you know a mentor there who who's done it themselves is a really really effective way. Yes. <laughs>
2: I'd just like to add a comment to that because I think it's a very valid point and it's one that we've certainly noticed with our journey. Uh, The the first project we did, I would have to say we didn't have high learner engagement. Now, that's partly because we we were tying it in with a compliance project that people didn't want to do anyway. That didn't help. Uh, The next project, we've had much greater learner engagement because we focused very strongly on the what's in it for me, for the learners, and our senior management talked about that to the organisations as well what's in it for them our third project, the, the, the larger one uh, that we've done with the simulator that is highly engaging and so we've moved to a much greater uh, learner engagement and we almost can't cope now with the level of interest that we're getting and that's an enormous factor for sustainability so I do agree that that's uh, you know, an important factor of the people supports part
6: moving in a slightly different direction but again looking at that as very valid for an organisation. Um, But I, I see another layer that the framework has certainly provided and that if it's not there in the future and perhaps that's where the framework can continue to support and build, I think we would still fall down in our organisations and that's the networking layer. So this is looking at what you're doing, pulling all those seven elements together. Yes, it might really look good but um, I'm now, sorry, Dot Waterhouse, I'm with the Office of State Revenue and what we've now found to maintain that without funding particularly is we're now uh, setting up our own networks within organisations that have a similar focus to us Mm. and Mm -hmm. thank goodness for the ongoing uh, framework offers of um, networking events online that don't cost any money really, very little time of staff because they don't have to travel so Mm. I, I see perhaps, yes we should be doing this to sustain ourselves, but I would hope, I, I still don't think it would be successful without the networking opportunities. Oh, I
5: absolutely agree. <clears throat> and in fact, um, in the Becta work from overseas, they, they had um, partnerships, networking, uh, as one of their factors at one stage. Uh, and they took it out. Um, and Because there's two ways of looking at it, uh, and it's embedded in here. Because part of your model is how much you're getting from external stimuli, and everyone's here, and this is part of the, 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 the actual um, learning how to do the people support or learning about the, um, the, the technology one, which is about resource development as, as well as, um, you know, the, the more uh, other sorts of infrastructure. So... If you see it as how do we obtain all these things, and you know that some of them you obtain through partnerships and networking, external as well as internal and where you get your combinations from. We've got Robert sitting here, external working, you know, person working with internal. Um, so, yes, it's another element of, of the framework and which I'd need to explain better, that embedded in there is that you can have external or internal networking and partnerships to achieve these, these particular factors.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. I mean, network collaboration too. I think, and you know, given r- recent work around the importance of collaboration and collaborative uh, knowledge creation, I think perhaps it could even be worthy of a seventh, a seventh, uh, an eighth um, pillar, as it were, for, for as a driver. Mm. Um,
0: Janelle and Debbie, I'd love to hear from you in terms of the um, engagement and and um, involvement from your ACE Colleges as well as your Enterprise Employees?
4: From the perspective of e-learning, I think ACE Colleges just do the most fantastic job in being very small, very, very time poor, often under-resourced organisations that really, really do, I mean we've thrown the punching above your weight sort of phrase around a lot. But I think they really do a fantastic job of being very innovative, largely because they're so very connected to their communities. And um, I think that really adds a great strength to what our colleges are able to do. But I think just I wanted to pick up on the, the networking point there, that again, because a lot of the colleges tend to be fairly small, fairly small staffed, I think the networking is an incredibly valuable issue because we do tend to become a little bit introspective just because you live and you work locally Um, and I know I've always really valued these events because it's the opportunity for you to work with TAFE, work with enterprise RTOs, work with private RTOs on on equal footing rather than that sort of maybe natural local competition that that might happen at times so I think um, projects like this are really really valuable for that networking and being in small rural or Organisations, particularly, you have to have that wider, that wider spread, and that's where I think e-learning really provides a great platform, both professionally for staff as well as um, with students.
3: Yeah, I agree. Um, as I said before, without the framework, we would never have gone to step one. the The first lot of funding that we applied for, I came in absolutely no knowledge at all, no base knowledge at all but by being able to um, to uh, get onto the, onto the uh, net and um, access resources, people's past projects and things. And it was a very private thing for me because I didn't have that network to start with. I didn't know anybody in the vet sector. I was, I was a nurse who um, worked for a pathology practice and I was a hands-on person. Now I'm a training coordinator, I'm no longer a nurse, but for me to be able to access resources and find out what other people were doing and how they were doing it and being able to contact them and be able to be... uh, It was an ongoing learning process for me. Now, what we've done is we've gone a step further and instead of just me being the person that knows what's going on about e-learning in the practice... um, We've now taken it a step further, and we're training our team leaders, our departmental team leaders, to be the champions, if you must use that word, uh, in their own areas. So they're learning how to... It's a Moodle platform we've got. They're learning how to put their own uh, expert content into Moodle. Um, Initially, uh, we couldn't find a volunteer. Senior management pick the volunteers, <laughs> um, and that was the only way they come forward. Since then, you know, from our pilot group before, we've got eight. Eight of the fourteen uh, departments are now uploading their their information, their content. They're now seeing it not just as something a learning a learning area or a safety induction. They're seeing it now as an area where it can be interactive and useful for their staff members, and. Um, you know, our project was to develop an induction process. What management wanted to do was to bring a pathology practices learning experience into e learning, bring them into this century. But as you probably know, scientists are very staid. They're very repetitive, and as I said today to somebody I know, I'm married to one, 74 dunks of his tea bag, exactly, <laughs> every single time. Everything is exactly the same every single day. He does the same things to get the same same results, and that's how, how it happens. Now, what these people are finding is that if they use an e-learning platform, it's saving them time. You know... We would get at home, he's a scientist, uh, we would get at home uh, 10 phone calls, you know, in an evening or a weekend, whatever, troubleshooting. Okay, what do you do? You put troubleshooting guides in their departmental areas. So instead of the the on-call people having to ring, they can bring it up and then that will give them a link to something else that will tell them the information they've got. And these people are suddenly saying, do you know, it wasn't that stupid. You know, yeah, that wasn't a bad idea. And it's becoming infectious. But not only infectious with these stayed people, the first day that anybody ever sets foot in the practice, they do an online induction, the general one. Then they have three months to do their departmental one. So from day one the first impression that people have of the practice is e-learning. Then they know where they can get their resources with natural attrition. I mean, I'll I'll probably be retired by the time it happens, but everybody will go directly to the e-learning source for
0: all of their resources, and that's what we want to achieve. It's fantastic. Mm. More questions. I noticed um, when Andrew got you to put your hands up, there's a lot of newbies. What questions do you have in terms of, um, oh here we go, and put your hands up if you want to be next so I can bring you the microphone. I'm not going to talk from that perspective but I was just following on from the e-champions and the comments I think that you made about the difficulty of maintaining e-champions and I want to refer to the Jasinski report that you mentioned this morning and I think she identified that actually often we use the innovators or the early adopters as e-champions and actually we should be using the early majority because the innovators move on, they get bored and so you've sort of, we were a bit stuck with that idea. I thought it was a really interesting idea and I'm just asking for your feedback about that. But I thought it was an interesting idea because, you know, that was a bit of a light globe for me that we do tend to put people in there that are enthusiastic but in fact they, they want to move on pretty quick as well. So I'll just put that out there for discussion.
2: I'll make a comment on that because uh, that was probably one of my issues and and Paula can probably remember quite a few meetings where one of the problems I had was as an early adopter, I was so enthusiastic about all the things that could be done that I was putting up Moodle sites and, and wiki sites and all sorts of things and saying, look what we can do. And it was overwhelming. People couldn't cope with that much information. And I had people saying, "Brahman, we're not like you. Uh, And one of the key success factors for me was being almost forced by a, a member of our team to to really simplify things down to a much you know man, more manageable chunk and that really helped so so early early adopters can need to be to a certain extent tempered by those who understand the the early majority and you're right you, we do get bored we do want to move on and I'm thrilled that the ADAS staff are now capable of sustaining this because it means I can move on to new projects so it, it is true
3: I think I can add to that because yeah initially I was so excited by all these wonderful things out there I was just playing and I was having a great time doing a little bit of this a little bit of that a little bit of something else instead of really concentrating on what I should be doing but you know to me it was like a kid you know um, this was all new. It was great, you know. I, I could actually play with these things, and I could develop things. And it is exciting when you're a new innovator. It's really exciting, and you know, it's really good for your you know 30 year old kids to say, "Wow, mum, you're not that silly after all." <laughs> they come to me for advice, you know. So you know, it is. It's it's you do have your initial innovators, but you do have to pass that on and let other people take over from you and uh,
4: impart that knowledge. That's a that's a great... Oh, sorry, Deb. Did... Sorry, can I just pick up there too? Um, yeah, I absolutely take on board what you say there because when we had our local champions projects, they were very much the people who were energetic and enthusiastic and their light bulb had already gone on. And as I, as I mentioned before, almost without fail, the people that worked as our local champions have now all moved on to something else. Um, but what that's left us with I guess is a situation now where I think all e-learning has to be driven by by need. And so as there's become a greater need and acceptance, then e-learning is more embedded in people's practice. So I keep coming back to that embedded notion. And I think you're exactly right that that's where now uh, we're not looking so much as the early adopters, but it's just become more mainstream. So I'm crossing my fingers that hopefully as time goes on and it just becomes part of practice, that um, that situation will kind of nullify itself more. (laughs)
0: Stefan, do you have any comments before I ask Kay to wrap up?
1: No, other than just to reiterate what the others have said. I think there are, it's a personality thing, and I think early adopters aren't necessarily good embedders. And I think in order to capture uh, the value of innovation and innovators, you do have to surround that with people who are more. Um, uh, thematic in their in their approach to things, are prepared to actually uh, put in the sort of the policy, the procedures, you know, not kill it, but actually give it give it structures and foundations in the organisation that will sustain it in the long term. Uh, and certainly, we've found that we find, for instance, the LearnScope project would take at least two years to take root, and unless it's actually um, given extra um, uh, support, it will just wither and die. So, yeah.
5: Okay. Would you like to? um I do have another opportunity tomorrow, but um, just on your point, um, this thing about the strategy I talked about—it is about this gradual, progressive, strategic, as you say, uh, approach to it all. um, But the other thing is, um, Tabor College were interesting because um, they had one person and and, and, and got started and, and. she went immediately to beyond the early adopters. She, she went to the people she knew that could be the blockers and they were her first group of supposed champions in, in guinea pigs in her organisation. Um, and, and you need all types... Uh, of people, and that's the, the, the point we're, we're making here. Um, and, and that's the point the Gips Tape, with their, their central unit, they're there forever. Everyone else moves around them. Um, and and, and uh, coming back to this, the, the, the whole um, point of the Gips Tape central unit is that uh, they will do everything that they can do to leave it, to create the scope so that it is the teacher facilitating learning with the learner through e-learning. And anything else that 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 teacher or learner doesn't need to worry about, um, such as, you know, setting up your middle or or whatever, is what they try to do. Um, So they try to leave those... You know, they do one-on-one mentoring with the tutor, but that's what that people support. It is those two... (laughs) teacher and the learner and everything else is revolving around them Um, but you do have to do it according to and progressive simple technology doesn't have to be complicated and especially when you get into industry that's what they want anyway and a lot of mature age want to start simple and and build on and get more complicated as it goes so um, I'm just uh, with a bit of uh, work on that uh, framework it's just a way of talking about it I think I've We very much enjoyed listening to everyone use um, just those seven factors to, to have a yarn and I hope everyone enjoyed
0: it. And the um, conversation has just started and um, one of the things that comes through time and time again in all the reporting and that sort of stuff is the networking and the framework and the relationships and the work of the e-learning coordinators in um, doing a lot of that. So this is the start of, this is our major networking event for the year in New South Wales. This is the conversation so it is one o'clock. I encourage you to talk with all these people and each other for the next two hours. Um, thank you Melanie and we'll see you, would would you like to say anything? Yes. I'd like you to thank firstly yes, our panelists for today. Please thank them.
6: And thank you, Rose, too, for, for driving that. Yes, Rose is going to distribute some, some um, sustenance to our participants. And it is time to move down to Parkside. And we thank you. We've got lots of, of ideas and thoughts uh, from today to chew over and to, to discuss. So I encourage you to wake your way down to the Parkside to enjoy a refreshing glass and a nibble.